The following program is being brought to you on the Grain Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today's episode is titled, Salmon, Shad, and Sturgeon Equals Healthy Ecosystems. I'm Rob Moyer from the Ocean River Institute. And we take the name of our Ocean River Institute from the writings of Rachel Carson and Homer, who talk about Ocean River. And I like the term because it invites us to think, uh, in, it invites us to complex systems thinking of where the boundaries between oceans and rivers are not clear and that they are seamlessly connected and that we must look for the unexpected linkages and connections between the different ecosystems that, that cover the planet. And today's episode is most appropriate for Ocean River Talk. Uh, we're going to talk about the productivity when rivers flow into oceans and ocean wildlife returns back into rivers to spawn, uh, most notably the salmon, the shad, and the sturgeon. With me today are Noah's Prescott Brownell. Hello, Prescott. Hello. Also with me are, from the Russian River Institute, are Piata Pesavich, and Joe Rogers. Hello, Piata. Hey, hello. And Joe, you there? Hi, how are you? Oh, great. So we're going to start with Prescott Brownell. Uh, Dr. Brownell is director of the southeastern region of National Marine Fisheries uh, and NOAA office down there. And uh, Dr. Brownell has stuck around since 1971, as he says, uh, as you'll hear, uh, because he enjoys what's he doing, what he's doing there. And he finds reasons, as we'll hear, for hope in the future of fish, both andromenous and diadromous. Uh, Dr. Uh, Prescott, um, these are big words. I always stumble over them. What's, what's the difference between andromenous and diadromous? Well, it's interesting. You know, there's, uh, there are lots of forms of what might be called dromy that have to do with scientific terms describing species that live in either the ocean or in fresh waters, and we have, just quickly, there's a, you can actually say that there are oceanodromous fish that live entirely in the ocean. There are potamodromous fish and organisms that live entirely in rivers and freshwater environments, and then there's a category called the diadromous species, and uh, that category actually includes fish that live part of their lives, fish or other organisms for that matter, that live parts of their lives in the ocean as well as part of their life in the freshwater. And in that category of diadromous species, there's actually the anadromous species that uh, live to their adult lives in the ocean, and they must enter freshwater rivers to spawn and to uh, reproduce and complete their life cycle. 
We have another curious uh, species, the American eel, for example, that is called a catadromous species. That is one that lives largely all of its life in freshwater rivers, and then when it's ready to spawn and reproduce, it actually goes downriver into the ocean and out into the middle of the Sargasso Sea at a very large depth and spawns and dies. That's a catadromous species. And then there's the, another category called amphidromous. Those are species that live part of their time actually in uh, freshwater, part of their time in estuaries, and part of their time in the ocean, but it, it's not really a, a migration that's, that's ruled by its reproduction. They just move back and forth. So uh, the diadromous species are, are, are that term of fish that uh, must live part of their life in freshwater, must live part of their life in uh, the ocean environment. Uh, so the mullet and the largemouth bass? You know, there are many, many species that uh, are commonly thought of as freshwater species that actually do enter uh, saline waters of estuaries and the ocean at times. Even the largemouth bass, for example, sometimes moves downstream into the uh, salty water of the estuaries, and then it'll move back. There are fish like the mullets that uh, live most of the time in the ocean, but they actually come up into the edge of the freshwater and marine environment to spawn. And so it's, it's interesting. There are many other species that actually do move back and forth from uh, the freshwater environment to the ocean environment. So tell us more about uh, ocean rivers and those connections between the sea and the shore for fish. You know, it's a really fascinating uh, story. And as you mentioned, Rachel Carson was one of the individuals that first talked a lot about the, the ocean river linkages. And uh, what we really have is the rivers of the world, and this is a global phenomenon, are, are definitely a vital link joining land and sea. And rivers really can be called the arms and legs of the oceans. That's a, a statement from Rachel Carson way back. And uh, they're an integral part. The rivers are an integral part of the overall ocean ecosystem of the, of the ocean and the world. So for countless millions of years, you might say, that uh, rivers have formed what really constitutes a superhighway for evolving species, including fish, mammals, invertebrates. And uh, it's been an important linkage with lots of biomass movement from the ocean into the riverine environment and lots of biomass moving out from the riverine environment to the ocean environment. And uh, as you know, the, uh, as most of us know that are in, in science related to aquatic ecosystems, that the rivers really contribute a huge amount of the fertility that actually becomes a part of the ocean ecosystem. And, uh, of course, the ocean currents move that all around throughout the oceans. But, you know, the, largely the ocean is a, a very nutrient-poor environment. There's not much out there uh, except for what's contributed by the rivers to coastal waters. And uh, the rivers are just an absolutely important link to bring, uh, bring nutrient materials and biomass to the ocean. So it's, and all that goes back and forth, like I say, like a superhighway. Well, yeah, you, when you say superhighway, you're not just talking about, you know, high-speed tuna fish on the Audubon, but you're, you're referring to uh, more than the animals going back and forth? Right, you know, and that's uh, some examples that are, are very low profile that many people don't see are uh, the uh, lamprey, for example. It's a little fish that often is thought to be a problem by some people, and, and uh, it's a species, for example, that is uh, very high in its, its biomass worldwide. You know, we have like, I think, 34 species of these, these uh, fish 
which are actually not fish, but some people count them as fish, the lampreys. And it's a, it uh, lives in the ocean, and then it must come into the rivers to spawn. It comes in, in huge biomass, pretty much unseen. It transports a lot of biomass into the freshwater rivers. That's just one example. And, uh, they, they do dislike the lamprey more in the Great Lakes than the Atlantic Ocean ones. Absolutely, you know, and that's a that's an example of a species that is a, an integral part of the ocean and riverine ecosystem. But in that particular case of the Great Lakes, you know that uh, that uh, species had been isolated from the Great Lakes for probably millions of years by a, a great fall there, the Niagara Falls and other falls. And uh, when it finally was admitted through the canals up the St. Lawrence River. It, it found a new environment, and it uh, it uh, exploded, exploded in its population size, literally, and it uh, pretty much eliminated the uh, fisheries that existed in the Great Lakes for a while. Got out of balance, so that was uh, that was a a fish that had uh, no longer been a part of the ecosystem in the Great Lakes. So this was an invasive species. That's right, and that's, that's what most alien. think of it. Yeah, that's right. It became an invasive species, and uh, many people, many scientists have. Uh, have not paid attention to the fact that elsewhere in a natural environment it, it plays a very vital role in uh, support of freshwater and ocean ecosystems and uh, food webs. Yeah, the oceans, the Rushing River Institute and the Ocean River Institute have a festival in Amherst, Mass. on the Fort River, and we celebrate the lamprey coming up the river there. And it's um, but people always are upset about the lamprey being a bad animal because they'd heard so much about the Great Lakes problem, and we have to really start from ground zero that this is a valuable animal to the ecosystem. Absolutely. And it, uh, you know, after spawning, it, uh, it lives in the river. It's a small, a small animal after it hatches, and it lives in the rivers for you know, three to six years, and it provides a very valuable food source that came originally from the ocean environment. Then eventually migrates back out to the sea again. So that's just one example of many species that uh, that do that. Well, sturgeon are an interesting fish, and I was interested to learn from Boyd Kennard that one reason why we know we don't know everything about sturgeon is that their life cycles are so long that they don't fit into the time periods of PhD students doing the studies of fish. And uh, we often forget that there are other timescales that we have to think about in uh, protecting fish. Absolutely, and that's a that's a good example of a fish that, uh, that of course, the Atlantic sturgeon, for example, is a, an ocean-oriented fish, but it does spend a lot of time in freshwater, and it must enter freshwater to spawn. And it tends to utilize the same habitats, and it, as Boyd says, it, it tends to form a, a tribe-like group that stay together and they. They utilize the same habitats in the rivers for spawning over and over again, and uh, they seek out the same spawning areas, uh, and uh, they pretty much stick to those spawning areas. But they are, of course, a long-lived species that uh, doesn't spawn, but every few years, every three to five years, they may spawn again. And with their long lifespan and relatively uh, lower reproductive potential, you know, they're highly affected by blockage by dams and by habitat degradation certainly a, another important species that has been uh, greatly decimated in its population size throughout the world. And certainly the Atlantic sturgeon, short-nosed sturgeon, have been greatly reduced in population numbers on the Atlantic coast in the last 50 years or so. When I was working for the Peabody Museum in Salem, Massachusetts, um, as curator of natural history, we had a, 
a, a good five foot sturgeon up on the wall mounted and it was caught off Swampskit and uh, it fell off the wall and, and, and got busted and so I uh, had to take it out to a taxidermist or an artist to fix it up and uh, I had a Toyota Camry so I had to crank down the passenger seat so I could just fit it in to the, that seat there and uh, my son who climbed into the car at day camp uh, was a little surprised to share the road with a sturgeon so we're out of time, but when we return from the break, um, Dr. Press Brownell will tell us about you know what what fate lies ahead for the sea sturgeon and other fish. listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. So many key world issues today relate to energy and environment. We are living in a time where world events set us up for a major transformation of our society. Enter Dr. Bernie Balkan. Dr. Balkan is Commissioner for Energy and Transport for the Sustainable Development Commission in the UK. Whether it's the financial crisis, China's transformation, the emergence of India, or Obama's ascension, put yourself on the pulse of today's changes. Listen for Environment on the Edge with Dr. Bernie Balkan, Tuesdays at 10 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. Let me 
You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're back with Prescott Brownell uh, from the Southeast Regional uh, Office of the National Marine Fisheries and NOAA. Uh, I was talking about sturgeon and how my poor son got stuck into the back seat of a car where the, the, the front seat passenger seat was cranked back with a five-foot sturgeon laid across it that was a mounted specimen. Uh, and uh, sturgeons, you know, tend to loom large in people's imaginations. Uh, Dr. Brownell or is there hope for sturgeon? We don't see them much. We don't hear much about them. They tend to be kind of solitary critters, I assume. Uh, is, is there hope for the sturgeon? There certainly is. You know, there are lots of restoration activities going on now for protection of the sturgeon. And uh, we're looking at fish passage and also improvements to water quality. And, of course, we have in place now rules to protect them from harvest, either through recreational fishing or commercial fishing. Those were both very uh, popular species for commercial and recreational fishing in the past. So now with those controls, as well as restoration actions, there's a, a good prospect that we have a good chance to restore and recover populations of those species. That's very reassuring. Uh, what about uh, herring and shad? We hear a lot about herring being challenged. Well, you know, those are, those are a couple of examples of one of the most important vital links between the rivers and the ocean. The uh, herring and the shad are oftentimes termed as uh, forage species, and they, they live most of their lives in the ocean, and they, they go up to the North Atlantic where the waters are very rich, and they grow. And then when it's time, after they reach adulthood, they come back to their natal river, the river where they were actually spawned. They ascend the rivers, and they spawn. And uh, formerly, before uh, you know, looking at old historical records we've been able to come up with, they came into the larger rivers of, for example, the Atlantic coast, by the millions, and even the tens of millions, mm. and uh, there's a huge biomass coming in from the ocean, and of course, these fish would spawn, and uh, they, would, they would lay their eggs, just huge quantities of biomass that are represented by the eggs. Then when they hatched out, they have a life cycle where they, they may spend one or two years in the rivers, and then when they out-migrate, they out-migrated by the trillions, huge numbers out into the ocean environment, and were certainly an extremely important part of the food webs for, for many marine mammals and most of the highly migratory fish that are predator species. And uh, we've largely eliminated that through uh, construction of dams over the years in all of our rivers. And uh, it's similar to the plight of the, the salmon, really. And the salmon play a similar role as well as, uh, as a part of the ocean ecosystem. The, I'm living in Somerville, Massachusetts, and we're concerned about the alewives. We have a tea station called Alewife, but uh, the citizens do come out uh, to the Mystic River and help the Alewives get up the, uh, the ladders in the spring. Yes, and the Alewives, of course, that's one of the, we call them river herring. There's the Alewife as well as the uh, blueback herring. They're very similar species in their habitat requirements and uh, extremely important fish. They were probably about ten times as abundant as the American shad originally and still are. We're making a lot of effort to try to recover those species. and They form a vital component of the, the ocean ecosystem as well as the riverine ecosystem. Yeah, they're just interconnected. Now, these systems are being impacted by 
uh, a number of things. Is pollution a problem and, and nutrient loading? And Absolutely. You know, that's we've been through an era in which there was a huge amount of uh, pollution due to sedimentation from agriculture in the past centuries due to the clearing of land and uh, erosion sedimentation. That was a huge uh, phased impact. But, of course, since then we've had a, a variety of other pollution situations, you know, with municipal wastewater in the past and uh, non-point source uh, pollution from agriculture and also um, industrial pollution. And we, fortunately, after 1970s, we began to pay a lot more attention to that, and so there's a big effort now to clean up the, uh, the pollution problems. And, and uh, in many areas, there's a, a large effort going on, like in the Chesapeake Bay and uh, you know, San Francisco Bay and many other areas around the country. There's a lot of effort going on to try to improve that situation. But, of course, what happened, the uh, pollution and the uh, regulation of water moving down the rivers by hydroelectric dams and the overuse of water in many areas, particularly the West Coast, has reduced the amount of fresh water that gets down at its correct season into the estuary and the ocean. And, of course, along with that comes concentration of many kinds of pollutants, which can have a, a deleterious effect. And I think everyone's heard about the Mississippi River and the dead zone due to a huge amount of uh, pollution and sedimentation. That uh, there, Now there's a huge area there that expands out into the Gulf that uh, is essentially a dead zone that's, that's uh, lacking oxygen. Yes, we had David Helvarg on an earlier episode, and he was telling us that that dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico has gotten to be about the size of the state of New Jersey or something phenomenal. Right. It is important to recognize in many rivers, though, I think because of the Clean Water Act and other uh, related legislation that we're gradually making progress in many areas to, to clean up our waters. And I think that's going to have an effect. Well, your, your comments about acting locally is music to my ears. Many of the listeners to this Moyers Environmental Dialogues, they want to know, you know, we want to know how can we make a difference in our own area and what can we do locally. And one of the programs I see uh, Noah and I see you engaged with is the, our community-based restoration programs. Can you tell us something about those? Yes, indeed. This is a fairly new activity. You know, there's been a, a great awakening, I think, in our country and really around the world, too or restoration of, of rivers and uh, the ocean environment. And part of that, of course, came about in the early 1990s with the community-based restoration program that's part of NOAA's Restoration Center. And uh, I'd suggest anyone who's interested in uh, what can they do in a local area, do a Google search or a, a Bing search for NOAA Community-Based Restoration, and you will get to the website with lots of links to projects as well as funding for uh, restoration projects of all kinds, including uh, uh, fish passage as well as wetland restoration, stream restoration, and there's a lot of related information and ongoing projects. I think it's a very positive thing. I'd suggest checking that out. Also, yes. the National Fish Habitat Action Plan. If you search, uh, just look for fishhabitat.org, you will find the National Fish Habitat Action Plan that has a lot of information on the local um, efforts and funding available availability that uh, is very worthwhile. Uh, and and what kinds of, of programs are those? Those are many kinds of habitat restoration uh, activities that are related. This is a nationwide uh, uh, plan that uh, that is in sync and uh, with the uh, community-based habitat restoration program. But it involves other federal agencies, state agencies, and private organizations. Coming together for ocean ecosystems and 
and, and riverine uh, ecosystems, which of course are part riverine, of the yeah. ecosystem as well. So they, they they move inland from the coastal states up the rivers, I guess. That's correct, and the community-based restoration program does work uh, not only in the ocean environment and estuarine environment, but in freshwater rivers as well because of the recognition of that vital link. Yeah, that's that's really important. So once again, if you're interested in those um, in those programs, you should uh, Google uh, NOAA community-based. Um, what was it? Community-based restoration. Community-based restoration. And also uh, NOAA again and um, marine uh, and fish habitat. Was it fish habitat? Search for www.fishhabitat.org. That's the there National Fish Habitat Action Plan. Well, I want to bring in uh, our Rushing River Institute friends. Uh, Piotr, um, what are some of the negative impacts in rivers on shad and salmon and sturgeon other than the dams? Well, um, Prescott mentioned a number of those. Uh, such as pollution and uh, one, some of the, and of course dams. We know that, and we are trying to provide passage, and uh, we are also trying to bring them, the, the species, to the place where they will spawn, and that's sort of a critical part. Uh, you know, it's in some ways easy to provide passage alone. The question is, where do we send them, uh, and how will they come back? So these are important questions, and frequently. Because if we are sending them to another dam or to the river that has been heavily modified or channelized, then they will not find a spawning habitat and would sometimes might be better off just staying downstream. Mm. That's, that's one of the uh, important factors that science is working now on. We have, beyond pollution, there is one interesting story that going, goes on where the thermal impact, where the temperature in the rivers is being increased. And we have a very nice, interesting example here, the Connecticut River, where American shad is going all the way to Vermont Yankee, uh, a nuclear power plant. And it's to scientific surprise that basically this fish is not passing the warmer water plume that comes from the Vermont Yankee. And there are studies now on the way to find out uh, that to confirm this hypothesis, we suspect that increase of temperature over time uh, is causing basically, basically this fish to return and not go any further because it's getting too warm. So the water is being used by Yankee in, on the Vermont border and on, on the Vermont, in Vermont on the Connecticut River. The water is being used to cool the, the facility, and then it's, it's so hot that it, are you saying it's so hot that it comes in, where it comes into the river that it creates essentially a, a wall that is preventing the shad from... Uh, going up to their natal shores where they want to breathe, I guess. That's right. You know, we have to understand that this is a very, uh, this is a very complicated and complex mechanism of uh, even triggering the fish to go upstream. They have to have the right flow, the right temperature, the right oxygen, and the right place to spawn in order to go upstream. So if... For example, we change the timing. What frequently happens with the hydropower facilities when we release a lot of water in a process called hydro-peaking, uh, we release it only at the times when there is the price of electricity is the highest, which, which is usually in summer in the afternoon, and shut the water down in the morning. Uh, this could cause very interesting effects. It makes fish to go upstream, and then all of a sudden water goes out and they are getting stuck. 
Oh my gosh. So it's not a good idea. We're going to learn more about some of the challenges of impacting our fish as they migrate into our rivers when we return after this break. For listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. All together. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Have questions about wind power? Listen for the TLG Wind Power Hour with Terry from TLG Wind Power Products. He'll cover the ins and outs of wind energy with you, whether you're a do-it-yourselfer or want a ready-made product. Let Terry give you the know-how and understanding of making wind energy work for you. Terry will share decades of hands-on experience so that you don't have to learn about wind power the hard way. The TLG Wind Power Hour, live every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. For listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. And now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. 
Hi, we're talking salmon, shad, and sturgeon, and how together they equal healthy ecosystems. I was just talking with the Rushing River Institute and learning about how that shad migrating up the Connecticut River to spawn uh, get off of the Yankee Power Plant in Vermont and, and, and run head into a, a hot water plume that aborts their efforts to go to their breeding areas further upstream. Piotr, is that right? That's correct. That's, that's what we currently suspect and, and hypothesis that we are testing. Mm. Uh, but there are not only uh, this sort of impact, what is also interesting and much more difficult to quantify or to nail down the reasons for is, for example, development of the watersheds, where we build a lot of houses and pave a lot of areas, especially in the coastal portion of the United States around the Washington area. Uh, then what is what is it causing is that the floods are becoming much more flashy, flashy and in summer, then the flows are getting much lower. And this could cause the very similar effect, that you have a storm, a lot of water is gushing downstream, fish are saying, all right, great, we have now high flood, let's go up. And then all of a sudden, the storm recedes, and the water drops to very, very little, to very small levels, and then they are getting stuck there and trapped. And I've seen fish stuck between the boulders in one reconstruction area, uh, and the of course, then they are becoming a great prey for herons and other animals, and they have much higher risks of dying. So what I'm trying to say here is that we all contribute to this problem, and we all can do something about it uh, by having more um, sustainable way of developing better ideas, you know, using porous asphalt and thinking about this part as a portion of our civilization and our uh, development of our landscape and watershed. Yeah, Prescott mentioned sedimentation being a problem. So in addition to uh, paving over areas, how is sedimentation, you seeing that being a problem? Oh, it could. Uh, first of all, it is changing the bottom of a river, but also uh, many of these fish, specifically salmon, are, are spawning in the areas of gravel where a lot of groundwater comes out. And if you get, have a lot of sedimentation, these little areas between the stones where larvae are going in are getting silted by the, by sand. Yes. And they put the eggs up there, but they have not, no way to go. It's so it is all you very, don't very see it, but it's bad news for them. Thank yes, you, Peter. It's all very complicated and uh, therefore requires a lot of... Uh, very thorough and investigations and uh, thinking about every little element of this system. Yes. Uh, Joe Rogers is, works with you at the Rush, Rushing River Institute, and Joe's a river scientist, and he's the guy out there taking the temperature of rivers. Um, how do you do that? And what? tell us about the work, Joe. Tell us about the work of the river scientists. Okay. Well, um, typically we want to find out um, information about temperature along the length of our study area, not just one specific location, but how it's changing throughout a river system. Um, and those changes are very complicated, and they're related to not just, um, you know, what's immediately upstream, but also uh, precipitation and atmospheric temperature, groundwater contributions, uh, the temperature of, of potentially dams upstream and how those dams release their water. So, what we'll do often is install 
a number of um, of logging devices that will monitor temperature say at 15 minute intervals, and it will record uh, this temperature in a certain location for the duration of the study. So then we can have this continuous information to plot up and see how it changes from one location in the river to the next. That's important to have information. Now, we have a photograph of you standing in the river with a big T. Yes. What's that about? Sorry. That's a, a, a mechanical device that we use to measure velocity of, of water in the river. Um, and that, that one isn't for temperature, but it's, it often uh, goes hand in hand. But um, we uh, were very interested in, in uh, temperature in New England and how it's related to... Um, kind of the infrastructure that's been left behind by, by years of industrial use of rivers. And we've seen, a, a, uh, like other people have seen, a big connection between these decaying um, impoundment structures and dam structures. And um, as they age and fill in, they become um, uh, fall out of repair, and they are um, becoming somewhat uh, adding to this temperature pollution. And we know that some fish have, mm. have very limited thermal ranges where they, um, they're not uh, able to reproduce or even survive in, in, in warm temperatures. And in locations where there's temperature impairment, we're seeing um, a decline in fish populations. Now, I've had the, the honor of going down the Fort River with you, and there'd be all this brush lying into the river and blocking our passage. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm one to want to pull it out, but you're always telling me to leave it alone. No, that's also here you've that, been up in, in airplanes looking that, down at ripples. That's the way that the uh, you know a natural environment in New England would probably look like. There would be constantly trees falling into the river and causing pools to develop and brush that overgrows it that allows for some shading and cooling and also just refuge for the, for the fish. So the Obviously. fish appreciate that that junk. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's good stuff. Leave it be. And why are you? Um, Mapping out ripple areas. Um, well, we take um, we take some computers into the river, some palm tops that have aerial photos on them, and um, with kind of a, a Bluetooth GPS, we can see where we are on the aerial photo, and kind of walk out the the um, area of each ripple unit or a pool or a run, and kind of define its boundaries and collect information about what what type of of attributes are in there, whether there are boulders or, or woody debris or this um, overhanging vegetation that you just mentioned, and kind of quantify what is in each of those units. And then what we know from fish bio biologists is that certain fish um, prefer certain structures within their habitat for them to succeed or for them to spawn. And so we can kind of ac accumulate this information and produce, produce models um, of fish habitat uh, um, presence and abundance. And then do you advise uh, community groups or, or, or conservation commissions on with your uh, information? On, yeah. Well, so now what we do is we can find out in, in the existing structure what um, the habitat availability is and then look back at, at um, reference rivers for areas that are, are unimpaired and see what kind of habitat should be available or um, historically was available in that river and look for discrepancies in places where there are, are habitat inadequacies. And then um, based on those findings, we can suggest ways where 
uh, restoration could help to um, improve the, the habitat availability for an individual species or a suite of species and uh, make recommendations as, as to how that river could be um, managed in a way that would be allow for some of its current uses but also um, be helpful for the animals that uh, have, have been using that river, you know, historically. That's great that you give people the information they need to really make a difference for the fish and the wildlife and the habitats of these rivers. Yeah, we hope so. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, What's maybe important, and it's Piotr again, what's important to mention is that we have ability now to create, to simulate the future, simulate uh, what will happen with global climate change and, and computer model, provide computer models and map and visuals for the decision makers. That's incredible. Where should people go if they want to learn more about your work? Uh, www.rushingrivers.org. Uh, and then they also can find a lot of information on the models themselves under www.mesohapsim.org. And that's where the models are. You can, but easiest navigation is to rushingrivers.org. Yeah. That's great. Piotr and, and Joe, I want to thank you for bringing us all this information on the show today. And uh, Prescott, uh, it was just great learning about sturgeon and shad and, and uh, salmon and the importance of lamprey speeding down the superhighways of the world, I guess. Thank you for having us on board today. It's a great opportunity to get the word out. That's our job, really, isn't it? It, it, well, it's so important to tell the stories and remind people of the wonders and diversity of, of life that's down in there. It's just the beginning of the show. You were telling us all these different classification of fish. It's like they're more diverse than we are, and I thought we were pretty diverse as humanity, um, or maybe not. But uh, it's amazing, uh, uh, and and that we you know get to more than just fish, and that the lampreys you were saying are are a more primitive animal than... Well, why would you say they're not fish? You know, they're a very ancient animal, and they actually don't have bones at all. They've, uh, they've been around for 300 million years, largely looking the same as they do today based on fossil records. And so they, they basically evolved into their current form before the development of bony fishes that we're more familiar with. Well, they're known for kind of uh, being, um, you know, uh, eating fish... Well, I guess that's all the time we have, but uh, it's amazing that the diversity of life in the rivers. And I want to thank my guests, uh, Prescott Brownell, Piotr Pasarevich, and Joe Rogers. Thank you. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. All together now. All together now.
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Experience higher love, an archangelic journey into ascended joy and authentic living. Your hosts, Sri Ram Ka and Kira Ra, will assist you to open your heart, expand your love, and be ever-present with true joy. Your journey with Sri and Kira begins right here on the 7th Wave Network with Higher Love, Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Can we recognize our world not as a commodity, but as a sacred creation that will support us best the more creatively we live on it? Green Visions is all about how a spirit of innovation and pleasure can be brought into solving our environmental problems. Join your host, Carolyn North, each week as she talks about what citizens of the world are doing to make a difference. Heal the planet, heal yourself, and have a good time doing it. Tune in to Green Visions with Carolyn North every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back, and it's quarter past the hour. In every episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, we spend the last quarter uh, talking with my colleagues at Ocean Champions about what's happening um, politically for advancing the conservation of oceans and ocean river ecosystems. Dave, uh, Dave Wilmot is, uh, is the executive director of Ocean Champions. Dave, how are you? And tell us where you are. Uh, hi, Rob. I'm... Micah Dunmire and I are here in Malibu. We are in the middle of a video shoot. We are actually creating a video that will help spread the word about Ocean Champions and the work that we're doing. It's uh, it's a fun story. Randy Olson, who is a scientist turned filmmaker, who's made such films as Flock of Dodos and Sizzle, uh, has been a big supporter of ours from the very beginning. And he really believed that it was essential that we have some great visual images to help tell our story. And so he flew to Washington, D.C. in June 
to film us in action back there and asked us to come here to the beach to do some additional shots. So, again, we could help explain to people the role that we're playing in, in the politics of the oceans. Well, that, that is really excellent. Uh, what's the name of, the, uh, of Randy's latest film about uh, the climate change problem? His, his latest film is, is Sizzle, but I should also Sizzle. put a plug in. He has a book coming out in just a, a week or so called Don't Be Such a Scientist. And I highly encourage people to look for the book, and there's a website, don'tbesuchascientist.com. He is a wonderful writer. He's a very funny writer and filmmaker, and I think that uh, many of, the, of your audience uh, would very much in, enjoy that book. The book is about helping scientists to be better communicators, and he does a really wonderful job of, of helping them do that. Well, Sizzle is a, f- a phenomenal film, you know, where we're so tired of these talking heads, you know, talking all this science about climate change, and... Randy has a way of just sitting on our next to us and, and keeping us engaged with that. He, he infuses humor into these very serious issues, and that really, I believe, pulls the audience in much closer. They can relax and enjoy the story as well as learn an awful lot about it. I, I enjoy the, the style and, and his filmmaking very much. Uh, so that's, that's about Sizzle and, and Randy. Um, I'm going to turn to Mike and ask, um, Mike, uh, what's new on Capitol Hill? Uh, we've talked in the past about harmful algal blooms and red tide legislation. You know, how's that going? And uh, in the last episode, we spoke at some length about the President's Ocean Task Force as well. Mike? So there's uh, there, there are movements on both of those fronts. Of course, Congress comes back after the Labor Day break, so some things are starting to pop up, and we were told, uh, just a couple days ago that our harmful algal blooms bill is going to get a hearing uh, in, in committee in the House. Uh, we believe that's going to be set up for September 17th. So uh, as you remember, it's already been uh, introduced and has passed out of committee in the Senate. This is the action that we were looking for in the House, and we're very pleased that things are proceeding according to a good schedule. Um, on that same day, September 17th, there is uh, the second public meeting uh, in San Francisco for the National Ocean Policy Interagency Task Force. So, again, we're encouraging uh, everyone who has a stake in the ocean or cares about it to attend uh, this meeting, uh, raise the issues, and make sure that the voice of the ocean is heard uh, with these members of the task force. And, and it, uh, Dave, I think there, there's also been uh, a little bit of movement on the climate bill side as well. Yes, I think we're all going to be hearing a lot more about the climate bill once the the Senate in particular gets back into action. And it's really important that the ocean is worked into the energy and the climate bill, and we're starting to see draft language uh, that does just that. It starts to deal with adaptation issues. How do we begin to understand and what do we do in terms of the ocean and ocean ecosystems uh, as climate change acidification uh, occurs. Um, so I think watch, uh, we'll be able to report much more of that in the coming weeks, but everybody should keep their, their eyes out on, on this climate energy legislation in the Senate. It's going to be very difficult to pass, so we're going to need an awful lot of help of people weighing in to make sure they're telling their senators that this is essential legislation to saving our oceans and to saving our planet. Yes, I hear there, there being some delays in the climate change legislation through the Senate, and I, I gather that's not the, a reflection on the legislation itself. 
We're, we're not sure yet. It, it, we're going to have to to wait and see. Multiple committees have jurisdiction over this, so it's not just in in one committee. It's a, it's a complicated process. I believe there's still some political will there. Uh, it's going to be a very heavy lift, but we have to accomplish this. I, I don't think that anyone who knows this issue believes that there's uh, any any alternative. Uh, we have to deal with this and deal with it as quickly as we can. Yes, yes, by all means. My understanding was that. Part of the delay was because the Senate is so involved with health care that they just, you know, so it's not so much reflection on, although the legislation is complicated and the committee work is enormous, uh, it is not like any uh, lessening of interest in this issue. Yes, talking to different political folks, uh, there are different, different lines of thought on whether or not the health care legislation helps or hurts climate if health care succeeds or fails. Um, I don't think we know at this point. Therefore, we just have to continue to to push hard on the strongest possible legislation in the Senate and make sure that it moves. But health care is not uh, going to have no impact. It will have an impact. We're just not sure which way will it help or hurt. Yeah. Mike, um, there's so many things happening, especially with the uh, Ocean Task Force unfolding rapidly. Um, How do people... uh, learn about what's going on and stay in touch and learn about opportunities to do more? Well, uh, the first thing is to uh, stay in touch with the, the CEQ website, which, one, provides people with the opportunity to give their comments in writing uh, at them that way. Also, though, there will be plenty of information on the Ocean Champions website and on our Facebook page to keep people educated on the talking points around these issues. So people can go to oceanchampions.org and use that as a portal to get to uh, these other sites. Mike we're, and Dave, we're out of time. I want to thank you once again for this Ocean Champions update. Thank you, Rob. It's our pleasure. again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then.